Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I am joined by Professor Daniel Green. Professor Green is Assistant Professor of Information Studies at the University of Maryland. His ethnographic, historical, and theoretical research explores how the future of work is built and who is included in that future. He published his first book, The Promise of Access, Technology, Inequality, and the Political Economy of Hope in 2021. His research has also appeared in such venues as Research in the Sociology of Work, New Media and Society, and the International Journal of Communication. It's my pleasure to welcome Dan to the deep dive. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me today. I really enjoyed the book and I was looking forward to this conversation. I've actually followed you on Twitter for quite a while. And, you know, I had done this thing that I do when people like publish books and I'm really interested in them. I'll do like a quick screenshot and then I'm like, okay, I'm going to reach out to them at some point. And I record all the time. And so finally it came around to like your book being (laughs) among the many that I was like, I would love to to talk to you about your work. Obviously, as I like to say, an overly proud Howard grad. I spent my formative years in Washington, D.C. Quite a bit of what you discuss takes place in Washington, D.C. So it's, it's, and I was there from 1990 to 1994. So as like I said, I'm seasoned. And so I predate a lot of the changes in the city that you discuss. But as someone who frequently goes to D.C. and has a lot of roots and friends and relationships in D.C., obviously, as many Howard people do, I've also lived through the things you mentioned in the book. So this is a kind of a local and bigger story for me. But I want to start really maybe beyond D.C., for you to explain what you mean by the promise of access and what you use in the book as the access doctrine. Sure. And I'll also say that, you know, while we are going to move away from D.C., and I I think that a lot of this applies to, you know, other cities in the West with similar economic and political problems, like it was important to me as local, someone who's born and bred here, to, to write a book that took D.C. as a city and, and not just a place where, you know, senators showed up. Because I, I think there are a lot of dynamics here that are perhaps heightened versions of what happens elsewhere in the country or elsewhere in the world. So the Access Doctrine is the, the simple message that we've all gotten from all sorts of media, but especially from political and economic leaders in the last 30 years, that you need to learn to code or else. That we live in a very uncertain labor market where our economic futures are very much out of our control. And the only path to security is to obtain the tools and the skills that get you a good job, preferably in software development. But we could also say other uses of so-called, you know, tech work in other realms like, you know, finance, culture, government. 
in DC during the period that I was studying for about four years after the 2008 recession, this was um, visualized by a bunch of posters that I opened the book with that were all over uh, the metro or subway system and walls everywhere. And they just had a, a photo of a black Washingtonian and a, a big sign above their head that said, the internet, your future depends on it. And it was an advertisement for these uh, free digital resources that the, um, the city was giving out that actually had nothing to do with the internet. So all of these resources were about Microsoft Word training, figuring out how to format and publish your own book, that kind of thing. And all the posters were saying, you know, I had spent 20 years as a beautician or something like that. Now I don't have to work with my hands anymore. I can help people start businesses. So the internet here was more of a symbol than anything else. It was the idea that with the right skills and the right tools, anyone could outcompete the inequality that has been embedded in the information economy for 40 years now, because the internet linked everyone to these global labor markets. You know, if you had what it takes, the technology and the skills, then you could connect to opportunity anywhere. And I think we all know that the real story is a lot more complicated than that. Poverty is a very complex thing. There's lots of structural factors, even like blind luck that leads people into wealth or into poverty. But this story became politically important in the 1990s for very specific reasons. And then this is where I depart from some of my colleagues because I think in, in academia and in governments and the nonprofit sector for the last four years, and I'm part of the problem here, we have uh, again and again and again told people that, you know, it's, it's a lot more complicated than just giving someone a computer or teaching them to code and they'll be fine. You know, we, we can't just throw computers around to poor kids and expect that they're gonna be okay. So we've developed, you know, more complicated measures about uh, rewards from access or skills or device stability, anything to complicate this original binary of the digital divide, the phrase that the Clinton administration used to describe gaps in access. But that, that core binary is still really important to our politics. It was real, still really important to the D.C. government. I mean, even in, during the 2019 campaign, or I'm sorry, the 2020 campaign, plenty of people were still pitching learn to code as the solution. So there's something about this that is immune to us refuting it. You know, it doesn't go away. So instead of providing an alternative way of looking at this stuff, I wanted to answer that very simple question, why does this stick around? We all know the story is more complicated than this. Why does this kind of common sense explanation, the access doctrine, stick around? And the, the story that I give is that in order to manage the kind of persistent poverty of the information economy, the kind of new Democrats of the 80s and 90s, in part to mark themselves off from the Republicans who have had you know, decades of political success at that point, used the internet as a symbol and as a poverty policy by which to tell people this was the solution to the problem of poverty in the information economy. You know, this is the thing that everyone had to do, log on, skill up, get a better job. And if you chose not to do that in their eyes, then you were dead weight on the economy. You were holding everyone else in your community and the country back. This is also in the 90s, remember, a time when we were very concerned about economic competition with Germany and Japan. And so if you are holding everyone back, then you need to be contained. So this hopeful story about opportunity everywhere for people with the right tools and skills comes at the exact same time from the exact same people that the welfare state is being taken apart and being replaced with something much more punitive. You know, Clinton is very honest about wanting to end welfare as we know it. 
you know, we see from the 70s onwards a massive rise in policing and incarceration, in part to contain those people, disproportionately Black, who could not find a place in this new economy after decades of deindustrialization. So the internet, your future depends on it. The story about the access doctrine is a kind of hopeful justification, an optimistic political program that explains and garners consent to the inequality of the information economy. But you always have to remember that for poor folks throughout the country, this kind of hopeful story exists side by side with the much more dangerous, threatening story of policing and prisons. And so that's really what I wanted to explain here. I wanted to see where the internet fit into how our politics and economics have changed over the last 40 years. And you do a really good job of highlighting that this story that is weaved through the social structure, the political economy, it's a evolutionary story. It's it's not one that has a definitive beginning. It's sort of morphed, like you said, as a reflection of or reaction to New Deal policies, to the civil rights movement. I would argue probably something like the kind of Nixonian black capitalism <laughs> movement. Yeah, absolutely. And then we have Ronald Reagan. And I guess we can delineate that as a particular moment, Clinton being another. But where you talk through that that evolution of the digital divide and how that has become such normalized language. Like, I want to give you an opportunity to kind of walk through that more deeply because that is such a critical part of the story. It's become one of those unassailable, quote unquote, facts, whether it's a fact or not, that many things seem to spin around that point. So I want, I want to spend a little bit of time on that digital divide and why that is such an important piece of this overarching story. Yeah, thanks for that. I, I think that's important, especially because we don't use that phrase as much anymore. Like your story of evolution, the digital divide has been the people with, with PhDs keep upgrading that term to be something like digital inclusion or uh, the STEM gap is very popular right now. We have a new computer science building at, at my university, um, courtesy of one of the Oculus Rift founders. So now we have a degree program that is meant to solve like the augmented reality gap. There are simply not enough people that know how to program augmented reality. You know, and there's going to be something new every year. It's it, that's you know, it's very hard to disprove this stuff because there is always a new technological innovation. And whenever the people who are profiting off of that or creating content for it or designing that thing, want to take the costs of training away from their own workplace and put it onto workers in the universities and schools and libraries or whatever, well, that's where the skills gap or whatever comes from. It's a push to take training out of the workplace and put it somewhere else. The language of the digital divide itself emerges in the 1990s, probably around 1995, in the Clinton White House, probably from a guy named Lloyd Morissette. But it's, you know, it's hard to say exactly. It becomes very important in their uh, campaign against Dole in 96. And there are a series of really influential reports, each bigger than the last released by a little agency called the NTIA in the federal government that measures the digital divide, just simply asking, 
you know, who has a PC at home, who has a modem, and then more complicated measures throughout the 90s and into the 2000s about, you know, what are they doing with it? What kind of activities are they taking? Um, and those are then the inspiration for thousands of other reports that happen in, in universities and the nonprofit world and other government sectors, that kind of stuff. And the digital divide in those early days is framed in crisis terms. The Clinton administration is very self-conscious that the U.S. has deindustrialized, that a lot of the good factory jobs are gone, maybe that have been automated or outsourced, and that most people work in services. Most of those service jobs are quite low paid. The good jobs seem to be those jobs where people with a lot of education, a lot of autonomy, relatively, a lot of office work in places like Montgomery County, Maryland, uh, Route 1 and 28 in Boston, Silicon Valley. These are the new electoral base of the Democrats, too. Once the New Deal coalition falls apart, that kind of tenuous multiracial alliance, Democrats start relying more and more on this new class of professionals, what the press starts to call the Atari Democrats. And those people at the base of the party are matched by a new uh, set of donors and leaders at the top who often come from the tech sector and finance, places like MCI, Apple, Hewlett Packard, Goldman Sachs. So with that support behind them and the internet beginning to be commercialized, the Clinton administration is observing that some people have internet access and some people don't. And these, I want to emphasize, are very real gaps that actually do exist. Like, I'm not trying to say that they're fake. What I am saying is that identifying these gaps is then used to generate a story that this is the explanation for poverty rather than a symptom of it. And if poverty is a cause of or is caused by not having the right tools, not having the right skills, then the solutions to poverty are simple. You get people the right tools and the right skills. And in that setting, the way that you did that was also obvious. You deregulate all communications markets so that there's the maximum amount of competition so that you can have people competing to extend cable service or uh, satellite service or providing PCs um, to as many people as possible. At the end of the day, access for these folks, and I, and I would argue for all scholarship that follows that, fundamentally means this opportunity to compete in the global labor market. And what the new Democrats are fundamentally concerned with is whether there is enough of that opportunity spread equally around the place. Now, paradoxically, or, or maybe not, depending on your view, this deregulation then results in some of the worst internet in the developed world. You know, it is, it is precisely because we have deregulated our communications markets, beginning with Reagan and then continuing in um, the 1996 Telecommunications Act, that we have some of the slowest, most expensive internet in the West. We are outmatched by not even East Asian countries, but like tiny Eastern European countries. Yeah. Estonia, um, you yeah, know, exactly. Latvia. <laughs> yeah. Powerhouses like that. Powerhouses. Yeah. It's, you know, more expensive to even get like a phone card here. Like it's, it's really bad. And so this attempt to extend opportunity to everyone to allow them to compete ends up making us less competitive, ends up making these access gaps much worse than they would be elsewhere. And that's a natural consequence of understanding poverty in, in this particular way. And so even as those words change, as we start to talk about digital inclusion or skills gaps or STEM gaps or stuff like that, the same basic story sticks around, which is like people are poor because they don't have the right schools and the right 
the right skills and the right tools. We get them that stuff, they won't be poor anymore. And, you know, fundamentally, that is a program that ends up deregulating communications markets. It's a program that ends up shifting the burden of training from the workplace to the state, particularly schools, libraries, and individuals at home. And ends up putting a lot of pressure on those places that prepare us for the labor market at the exact same moment that a lot of those places, because of widespread urban austerity, are having their budgets slashed. So at the same time, when there's less money for the school and the library, the school and the library also has the fate of the entire economy put on top of it. Because if it doesn't train these people, then everyone's screwed. Libraries and academic institutions, schools on on all different levels, they their story is also woven very much into this narrative. And one of the things I, I found pretty interesting was who do these institutions ultimately serve? It It seems like that is not explicitly asked, but as you spend time in these institutions, as you speak to various residents in different parts of the city and detail their stories and participate in their lives as it pertains to this issue, that kept coming back to me that Mm -hmm. what is the goal and mission of the public school, particularly as we have a charter school debate and knowing D.C., I always feel like the charter school conversation, which has existed for a long time, but maybe it's by proximity to D.C. for all the reasons that I shared at the beginning of the show, that I always feel like it was so centered in D.C. for and then extrapolated out into the national discourse. But having said all that, I want to give you an opportunity to weigh in on the institutions that you've already cited and my little soliloquy there. Like, what do these, who do these institutions serve and why does that so centrally matter as we discuss these resources? Yeah. So for, um, I mean, I I think you're right. Like the DC is, with the possible exception of New Orleans, ground zero for the charter school phenomenon, in part because it is kind of an outsized manifestation of the city versus state conflicts that are all over the country. So Albany hates New York City. Wherever the capital of Michigan is, hates Detroit. Congress hates D.C. And so it's often been a site of experimentation. The interesting thing about the charter school phenomenon is that it worked in the opposite direction. Experimentation within the city then inspired Congress to act federally. So like the Michelle Rhee, our notorious superintendent who oversaw a kind of mass firing of teachers, mass shutdown of schools that were then reopened as charters, which for listeners who don't know are privately managed public schools that are run in parallel with the traditional public school system. Students usually distributed by like a lottery of some sort. So Michelle Rhee is doing all that and she gets invited to the White House. You know, Obama screens the Waiting for Superman documentary uh, around the same time that she's on the cover of Time that local DC policy then starts influencing national policy. As far as um, who these institutions serve, this was uh, a really important question for me to look at. And I I think it's uh, really where the action is here because the kind of overarching assumption that I make is that, you know, for all the stuff that we just talked about, about these stories that we tell about how poverty works, I don't think people are stupid. You know, I, I don't think you can just tell them that story and they think, oh yeah, duh, of course that's how the world works. People need an incentive to do that. They need to be trained to do that. They have to have that story integrated into their everyday life in some way that makes that convinces them that it's real, or at least makes them act as though it's real. So most of the book, after some kind of historical overview of the sort that we just talked about, spends its time embedded in the everyday life of institutions that try to solve poverty with technology, places like libraries and schools. 
And it is there that I found this answer to why do we think we need to learn to code? And it's not because librarians or teachers themselves are on the ground level are convinced that, oh yeah, this is gonna solve all my problems. Teachers know how complicated this is, especially as social services have been cut elsewhere. Teachers are not just teachers, they are EMTs, they're therapists, they're nurses, they're dietitians, they're translators, they're therapists, like they're all sorts of things. They know how complicated poverty is. But they also know that they're overloaded and they don't know what to do to solve these complicated problems. They also know that their budgets have been cut, so they're desperate for grant support. They also know that politicians are always eyeing them as a challenge, a place where you can possibly make cuts, a place that is a political punching bag, especially for conservatives, but also a lot of liberal reformers. These pressures are only heightened for charter schools, which as like independently run institutions are all competing with each other. So they're very sensitive to the political winds. And all of these institutions begin to realize that because of all of these threats, because of their complex mission, they need something that brings them resources, brings them legitimacy, and makes their mission a lot simpler. And the access doctrine that learn to code dictate does that. It convinces politicians that you're modern, that you're making changes, and thus you deserve to have your budget increased. Ditto for donors. Donors in the education and library space are disproportionately from the tech sector. The Gates Foundation is, is probably the single most important education policy site in the world, much less in the U.S. So it uh, attracts money. It attracts legitimacy. It also makes your hard job a lot simpler. So like in the libraries, for example, like I, I spent a couple of years at um, D.C. public libraries, especially in the Martin Luther King Jr. Central Branch, right around the corner from what I knew as the MCI Center, but is now the Capital One Center. And that uh, library was in desperate need of renovation. It was de facto the largest homeless day shelter in the city because there's really not anywhere else you can hang out during the day without buying stuff. So hundreds of people uh, walked over there every day or bust over from different homeless shelters. And a lot of them were tired. You know, they had been working. They didn't have a good night's sleep because they slept outside. Then maybe they were on some meds that caused them to sleep. Maybe they're just, you know, having a bad day. So a lot of people slept. And the conversation in the library about whether or not you're supposed to sleep is really complicated. Because on the one hand, librarians are these kind of helping professionals that want to care for people, that want to extend them resources and support that they wouldn't otherwise have. So yeah, maybe sleep. It doesn't hurt anybody. On the other hand, there's only so much space in the library. You got to prioritize folks eventually and your donors and your higher-ups like to see people who are active, who are using the resources. Those two things are in conflict. The Access Doctrine makes this much simpler. It says the job of these institutions is to train people to enter the professions. And obviously, you're not doing that if you're sleeping, because you wouldn't sleep at the office. So that complicated question about whether people are about to sleep at the library is made a lot simpler. No sleeping at the library, because you're not actively training. So the Access Doctrine makes, you know, it helps these institutions focus on their mission and change themselves. But because that mission keeps the organization alive, eventually it starts to push out the very people it is meant to serve. So the library is, 
built to help those homeless folks. That is what those librarians feel like they are there to do. But in order to keep the library alive, in order to get the renovation that they desperately needed, in order to attract new political interest, new grants, new personnel, new leadership, in order to collaborate better with other parts of the city, like their neighbors in a a quickly gentrifying area, they have to start forcing out the very people that they meant to help because those people are not coming to the library, by and large, for more skills. They're coming to the library because they need a respite from a city that doesn't have any space for them. So there's this cruel way that is is through no individual malice for the most part. These are all people that really want to help. But because they need to keep their institution alive in order to help, that ends up forcing out the people that they were trying to help in the first place. I want to bring in, like, maybe it's two disconnected thoughts, but in my notes, I have them as somewhat connected. So feel free to disconnect them if you feel like they are disconnected. But it sounds to me that as I'm hearing you talk and I'm reflecting on what I read in the book, that when you have this emphasis on things like training and skills, it really debases our civic good into market outcomes. And so that's one thing that I want to put as a frame to kind of get your reflection on that. Because when you were telling that story that they need to talk to a certain audience in order to get resources, in order to do the mission, but the mission then starts to change to serve different people. And you're on this treadmill where it's it's always kind of changing. And I also, so that's one reflection. And then I wanted to give you also an opportunity to think about how we use public space or how people use public space to adapt and also to resist some of those things that you just talked about. So again, maybe think about how are we thinking about our civic spaces and public spaces in the first place, and then relative to how users of those spaces, the people are adapting to these changes and resisting some of these changes at the same time. I don't think those questions are separate at all. I think it's very important because it's about, fundamentally, I'm someone who's interested in organizational change. You know, that's what I study. And so for me, this is not a story so much about either individual poor people who are struggling or who are victims. You know, they're not, they're creative people, they're strong people. Um, Nor is it a story about like um, malicious gentrifiers, although obviously that, that stuff is happening. This is a story about the organization that ties those two sets of people together into a specific relationship. And the story I tell, particularly in in chapter five, as I kind of start to zoom out from the particulars of of these individual organizations, is we have, what we are seeing here in terms of these pressures on these organizations to change is a a new institutional culture, a new idea about how we should run these these public institutions like schools and libraries, um, these places that prepare people for the labor market or shelter them as they're outside of it. Universities are another good example that's not really part of the book. And what I think we had prior to, you know, let's say the mid-1970s is a public service institutional culture that was built for the kind of golden age of capitalism where there was like a clean barrier between, okay, these people are, some people are in the labor market, some people are out. We're going to provide a public resource that is especially for those people who are out. It is that public resource is set outside the market. That public resource is a site of care. And we shouldn't idealize these things. 
Jim Crow what made it very clear that some public spaces were for some people and not others. Those relationships of care could be quite brutal. Like not every teacher is particularly kind, especially to black and brown kids, especially in the Jim Crow era. But nonetheless, that kind of public role was there, whether that public was, you know, hurting her or helping. And what we see is these institutions come under attack as they get all these pressures and then as they have much more problems to solve is that that public service culture is replaced with what I call a bootstrapping culture. And I take inspiration there from startups, which are also an important part of the book, as the kind of ideal organization, the thing that everyone else is supposed to remodel themselves to look like. And startups are often romanticized as like starting from scratch with very little infrastructure and able to pivot in their mission and their offerings at a moment's notice, depending on the data that's coming in. You know, you might be a business-to-consumer company. That's not working out. Let's pivot to a business-to-business a company. And there's all sorts of wonderful stories about this, about like Slack was like basically an accidental product that was invented as an internal chat tool as they were making a video game. The video game flopped, or they were like, hey, we like how we use this chat thing. And that has then become the model for how schools and libraries are supposed to act. They are supposed to keep responding to these changing needs of the economy of impoverished patrons and students. And when something doesn't work, they need to change in order to solve this very, very urgent problem. There's a lot on the line. So bootstrapping is this process of constant change in pursuit of this mission that they are ultimately, you know, don't have a lot of tools to succeed in. You know, there's not at the end of the day, a lot that a school can do to affect the, the lifetime labor market success of a student. You know, they can prepare them for certain skills, certain ideas, but like what's going to happen to a kid 5, 10, 15, 20 years after they leave school is as much about their zip code, as much about whether they're entering a recession or not, as much about their gender as it is anything that the school gave them. So, but these schools, you know, like we said earlier, need to stay alive. These libraries need to stay alive. Uh, and so these public spaces that were once open to all are increasingly focused around these specific training goals, which change frequently depending on the data coming in. And the people within them are welcomed or pushed out based on whether they meet this, uh, these sets of training goals. Because that previous divide between in the labor market and out that was very important to the welfare state in the golden age of capitalism is gone. It is very important for poverty policy from the 1970s onwards that everyone is in the labor market all the time. Welfare in this regard has been replaced by workfare. You're not taking a break after you're fired. You're not taking respite. You are simply in a different part of the labor market where you're looking for a job or skilling up, and you need to be doing that in order to do things as simple as like receive disability or receive food stamps. So schools and libraries have changed as part of the same overall way that we treat people on the margins of the economy. You need to be constantly engaged in the labor market. And that means a very different thing for what we've described as public space. Now, like you said, people are able to resist this and do different things within it. So at the library, for example, you know, there was patrons were incredibly creative about like 
let's see, like there were these like glass cubicles that were mostly loaned out to startups, but wasn't always the case. And people would, uh, especially kids after school, would take them over for like loud Pokemon games. People knew that they didn't have necessarily have time to do what they needed to do on the library computers and librarians weren't going to give you more time for anything besides the job application. So people would collaborate um, and trade credentials with each other in order to set up like a three hour session that was made up by using like three people in a row's login information or something like that. So people adapt and they make their own spaces. But ultimately, like the institution in the cases that I watched is more powerful than those people. They were not sufficiently organized enough to be able to force the institution to change on their terms. Instead, the institution changed on on its own terms and started pushing these people away. I am optimistic that that doesn't have to be the case everywhere. I think we've seen incredible activism around libraries and schools in the last kind of three years, especially, you know, after the period that I studied. But in DC, what I was looking at, these kind of institutional processes rolled right over the people that they were supposedly meant to serve. And it's interesting that you alluded to what I'd call like the mirror or the flip side of this, which is the tech world, the VC culture writ large. And I want to give you an opportunity to kind of talk about that in relation to access, because as you said, now you have one audience that is highly coveted and another audience that is maybe going to work as a part of this or at very least serve this audience, right? There is another type of relationship. And now they're wedded together in this larger story of access and and the promise of access, you know, to actually use the name of the book. So how were your experiences kind of windowing or seeing the inside world of tech startups and VC culture and how they got access to certain things? Yeah, so it was very important to me. I really appreciate how you just describe these people as like living in the same world, but two different parts of it. Like it's, I think... One of the things that frustrated me about the digital divide language was that it really imagined that people live in separate worlds, that there is like a canyon dividing people with skills and access from people without it. And our job as as good liberals is to take the people on the bad side and bring them over to the good side. And obviously, there's only one economy and we're all in it. And what you just laid out is pretty much what the economy looks like today, right? There's a a small number of well-paid people with a lot of education who are doing, working in finance, working in tech. And then there's a lot of poor people who are serving them food, taking care of them at the hospital, driving their Uber, whatever. And, you know, a lot of regional variation here. You know, if you're, it's different out in rural places where you have a lot more like asset ownership, you know, especially important for like Donald Trump's base, but especially in cities, like that's the two sides of the economy. And so it was really important for me to investigate startups as one side of this divide in order to talk about how the rest of the city was forced to change on their terms. Because cities, beginning in the mid seventies, are no longer parts of different ends of the same value chain within a country, you know, different that are all like largely cooperating. Cities are all competing with each other. They're desperate to recruit capital, whether it's in the form of like highly populated offices or just like prestigious headquarters or something like that. They're really desperate for that kind of investment. See that with like sports teams often. 
And they're extremely desperate for, you know, what we would call gentrification. For after white flight in the 60s and 70s, we start to see the downtown cores empty out. Cities are really desperate for wealthy consumers to come back in. This is the story that we get from folks like Richard Florida, who has this recipe for urban success, where the thing you need to do to be a city is to make like cool sites of consumption for hip young white people who will then come and bring cool jobs with them. In reality, the process is the opposite, right? The, the wealthy folks show up and then the city changes around them. And when the city starts to invite these people in, in part to, in order to recruit them in the first place, in part because then those powerful people become a part of politics, whether formally or, or informally in terms of donations, let's see, on boards, whatever, the rest of the city changes in turn. So the rest of what, you know, we often call social reproduction, the the things that don't make commodities, but make people, schools, libraries, that kind of stuff, changes to accommodate the tech sector, even if the people it's caring for aren't going to be part of it. So that's why it was important for me to go to startups is because they are not just the kind of the leading edge of the economy, but kind of the the ideal type that everyone else is trying to catch up to. They're the only thing that seems to work right now, you know? So when I hung out in startups, I was really looking for the, the work habits and the organizational habits that would be try to be transferred to other organizations. And chief among those was this idea of the pivot, which comes from um, a lot of places, but most notably Eric Rice's book, The Lean Startup, it's a, you know, kind of a classic man- business management text. And taking inspiration from Toyota in the 70s, who pioneered this like lean production model, Rice talks about the needs for startups um, to be completely unafraid of change and to take in new data and be willing to throw out everything about the organization when that data gives you something that you weren't expecting. Like you have to be willing to throw out the fact that you love being a business to consumer company because you might want to be a business to business. The data says you'll be a better business to business company instead. And that means that you change the products that you're making, the people that you're hiring, what your office looks like, you change everything. And that sense of constant change in order to master the economic uncertainty that surrounds the rest of us was the defining feature of organizational life in startups for me. And that was both something at the very top, like executive decisions, but also day-to-day stuff. Like people switched activities, switched the way they talked to each other, switched where they were sitting, switched what they were doing, the clients they were talking to, the projects they were working on three or four times over the course of an hour, let alone over the course of these 12, 14, 16-hour days that people were pulling. And... That was addictive for some people. Young people really, some of them really loved this sense of getting to do something new every day. It was a burden that often falls unevenly across gender lines where women in particular have to do a lot of unpaid labor to kind of get everyone else to buy into this constant switching. They're doing the facilitations and the training and the... yeah. communications. (laughs) And even like the dumb stuff, like going to buy beer for the the work happy hour or like dividing everyone's funny t-shirts for the the work picnic, you know, doing the onboarding and the... Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And and we often see those kind of gender divisions in terms of like who is in what sector, like the engineering teams, largely male, customer service teams, largely women, sales teams, mix of both. Human resources, last thing to be added, usually women. So these you see these kind of gender divisions across there. And what I was interested in is whether places like schools and libraries that look to startups as a model were able to do that same kind of pivoting. And the, that model is presented to them, you know, not just in the popular press or in, in you know movies or whatever, but by donors 
who often come from the tech sector or are inspired by it themselves. They come in education. Like a lot of librarians are now trained in information schools like mine instead of library schools. So in their coursework, they're taking classes with database engineers or um, HCI people in a way that their librarians of 40 or 50 years ago were not. These examples are everywhere uh, and they become logical and they become sensible when your institution is under threat. You start to try to look like these folks, but a library in a school can't pivot like a startup. Ultimately, it still has public service duties. It has to take in people that, that walk in the door. You know, a, a school can't decide, a middle school can't decide to be a high school because it doesn't, isn't seeing the test scores that it likes, you know? It has a, a set goal that it has to have that is constrained by particular public duties. And a lot of those outcomes that it wants to see are frankly beyond its control. So that process gets to be really frustrating for people. And that's what leads to this constant cycle of bootstrapping. You know, they can't succeed, but nevertheless, they have to keep trying. Yeah. It's that treadmill that you were talking about. And it's interesting because I had jotted down here, who can pivot and who can't? Right? Like, why Why does matter? And as you were describing it, it seems like for a certain group, the cost of pivoting, whether it is financial or psychological or some other resource, is much lower than other groups that are not even the institutions of the academics or the libraries, but the people, right? Like, how often do certain people from less fortunate backgrounds or more disadvantaged backgrounds have the opportunity to just become something else, right? When they're in these systems needing these resources. So did you get a sense of that difference in the consequences of someone trying to use these public services and then the tech VC space, you know, kind of what I'm just general tech continuity and how they move in in cities like a DC. I guess I would say that the kind of larger political and economic institutions that invite uh, tech in and give tech space allow or facilitate more flexibility for tech than they do for other places, you know, and, and then that's just down to like stuff like money. Like, I mean, you're not going to get billions of dollars of investment into libraries. Like, it's just not a growth area. And all of those resources do lead to some flexibility that you couldn't have otherwise. It also, you know, there's also a fairly clearly defined set of goals for a lot of startups, like, you know, growth and or revenue. How that happens may not be entirely clear, but you, you know what you want to see. Whereas schools and libraries are serving a thousand different masters. So there is a way that flexibility is rewarded and encouraged on uh, one end of the labor market and perhaps enforced at the other end of the labor market. So I guess it would be less about like who gets to be flexible and and who gets to be flexible by choice and on their own terms. Mm -hmm. I would say like their flexibility in the startup world is often about autonomy, having some choice over what you can do and, and where, but a teacher, like I said, is going to have to be 20 different things across the course of a day. And that's just what's required by their job. Yeah, and absolutely. That, you know, that's what leads to these like really high turnover rates, especially in the kind of charter schools that I was working at. As I said at the very beginning of this, I spent these formative years in D.C. You know, this is 90 to 94 was my peak D.C. moment. And Chocolate City is Chocolate City no more. 
right? Yep. In the sense that, you know, a city that we all knew as a quote unquote black city is now not majority black. And we've sort of alluded and touched on this narrative of white flight gentrification and mobility and how those things intersect. But again, in DC, it is both specific and general. Right, We can extrapolate things from D.C., but D.C. also has a very unique relationship. So I want to give you an opportunity, you know, before we get to the final two segments of the show, to kind of reflect on how those forces have come together to de-chocolate Chocolate City. <laughs> yeah, and that transition point happened during my research. So I, I, um, I think it was 20, 2011 or 2012 when the city was no longer majority black. And the as far as like what's unique about it, it is a company town in, in some respects. Like at, at this point, one of the things that's changed it is that the not only did the I mean, the private sector has always in absolute terms employed more people than the public sector in DC, but during the Great Recession, their growth rate diverged sharply, such that there was like no growth in public sector jobs and booming growth in the private sector. What that means is part is that the source of our local black middle class, the federal government, which relative to the private sector was fairly non-discriminatory, like you knew what it took to get a raise and what it took to get a promotion through the GS system. It's fairly rigid. That was no longer the source of growth anymore. So you still have an older black middle class in the city and especially in Prince George's County, just outside the city where I live and where the University of Maryland is. But... In, in absolute terms, like these like crap low-wage service jobs started to take over. This narrative about cities who are in competition with each other needing to change to court the tech sector is very much a narrative of we need outsiders to come in and save our city, and then we need to change the rest of our city to look more like outsiders. So this is a story about justifying displacement and gentrification as a productive investment. It's imagining that inviting in uh, wealthier white folks, high-cost condominiums, high-cost you know, consumption efforts, that's the kind of thing that's going to be the industrial base of a whole city. This is basically Richard Florida's argument. And that's easy to imagine because startups don't require a lot of fixed capital. You don't need to build a factory. So we can delude ourselves into saying like, oh yeah, that gentrification that's knocking down some affordable housing yeah, that's going to be the economic growth for the city because it's inviting in all these exciting new young people. This often leads not just this kind of general conflict across the city, but um, specific conflicts within specific welfare state institutions. So in the library, which was fighting to get this renovation and, and focusing on skills outreach as its mission because of that, bought out the contracts of a bunch of black veterans who had been at the library for decades and were senior members of the union and replaced them with a bunch of mostly not credentialed, no master's degree, young white people that the librarians usually called the hipster contingent who just kind of looked like the future. These were <laughs> young white folks that were there to teach the Photoshop class, use the 3D printer, that kind of thing. And they're, you know, through no malice of their own, they were there to help. They really cared about their job. It's a very stressful, not particularly well-paying job. But the institution chose those people as the future and displaced yeah. older black workers as the past. The same thing happens in charter schools and in the education sector at large. This is the only reason Michelle Rhee and Adrian Fenty were kicked out is because 
she had attacked, fired lots and lots of teachers. And there was, that was one of the sources of the black middle class in, in DC, in large part because we didn't have a comprehensive public university for a long time. Oh, we've always had Howard, but the University of the District of Columbia did yeah. not exist until pretty late in the game. Yeah, UDC. So the only way, uh, yeah, exactly. So a, a lot, the only way a lot of people could get into the middle class, get into the professions, was through a teaching degree. So an attack on teachers was perceived correctly as an attack on the black middle class. And I, I think those things will happen elsewhere. I think you just saw them in, in really stark relief here because of the particular class dynamics of Chocolate City. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, anytime you can drop in an Adrian Fenty reference, it's, a, <laughs> it's an interesting time. I wonder whatever happened to him. I hope he's okay. I hope he landed. He's, he's doing great. He <laughs> um, is working for a charter school nonprofit. Yeah, I'm yep. well aware that he's doing very well on on all yeah. facets. He landed yeah. in a bed of money and a bed of Apple money, literally. Yep. Actually, yep. the more I, yep. more I think about that metaphor, um, yep. I want to I want to get to off the dome, which are just some general, just fun off the top of the head kind of questions. And before I officially get to that, is it's so interesting when we imagine new futures, what images we put in our mind and how that drives drives policy. You know, I'll kind of leave that one to the side there. But um, off the dome, a little more lighthearted than thinking about displacing um, (laughs) Black teachers in schools. So my first one is, if you could be in the Guinness Book of World Records for anything, what would be your chosen feat to attempt? Hmm. Say, uh, biggest lasagna. (laughs) I, I love to cook and I'm also quite competitive. Okay. That's a good one. I, I gotta imagine that there is a record for that. I'm sure. I've not looked it up, but I'm pretty sure there's a record for biggest lasagna. So let's see what that's gonna entail. Lasagna, you know, funny thing about a lasagna. I'll take a, a side note. Lasagna is fucking expensive to make. It is. It's such a pain <laughs> in the ass. <laughs> like it takes forever too. Yeah, it's like it's an investment to make really like a is. really yeah. quality lasagna. So yeah, kudos for you for taking that on. If we were going to make a movie about your life, right? So we're we're now filming the Promise of Access journey as a movie. Who would you choose to play you? Who would I choose to play me? I think David Cross would be a terrific narrator. I would I'd probably go through him. We don't, okay. we don't exactly look to like, but I, I feel uh, kismet with him, kindred spirit. Okay, <laughs> that's a good one. If you can choose any fictional world or place to visit, what would that world be? Hmm... I'm a huge nerd, uh, and I'm very much looking forward to the new adaptation of uh, The Wheel of Time, this like 14-book fantasy series by a guy named Robert Jordan who actually died before he could finish. So I will say in, in The Wheel of Time. That's a good one. And talk about long books. There's Yes. <laughs> and there's about 15 of them. Yeah. They're long individually, and then there's a lot of them. So yes, that's a good world to choose. And I'll, my final Off the Dome is if you had to choose between one of these two powers, which would it be? Teleportation or flight? Oh, teleportation. That would make scheduling so much easier, yeah. <laughs> Very Nightcrawler-esque, right? Just end up in another, oh, yeah. in another place, right? That is perfect. So the final segment is the drop, where we have an opportunity to share anything at all with the listeners that are out there doesn't have to be particularly heavy, can be actually very light. So I have a drop, you have a drop. 
I hope. Um, do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? How about you go first? Show me what you're working with. It's funny. No one ever opts to go first when I, when I, <laughs> when I provide that as a, as an option, I got to start like switching it up a little bit and just sure. telling people that they have to go and, and see what happens. Okay. My drop is actually pretty simple. I've been giving these like thematic invitations for people to listen to folks' music. So I had like Anita Baker at one point, Bill Withers, where I was like, just anything by those artists, go ahead and check them out. So sort of these deep dives into particular artists. And I'm going to actually do that again with an artist who's, I guess, popularly known for one song in particular, but his discography is actually worth digging into beyond that one song. So the artist I'm going to give people to listen to is Seal. And the song that ever he's known for is, you know, Kiss from a Rose, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. From Famously from, I think, Batman 2, like the original Batman, Michael Keaton mm-hmm, Batman, mm-hmm. not the other iterations of Batman that we've seen since. And Seal is an artist that's really interesting to me. Again, it's kind of a story. Why I thought about him is because it really tracks to my time in DC, because when his first album came out, which is self-titled and had a pretty big song, Crazy, was like right when I started at Howard. Yeah, so I think yeah. that song became popular like that summer of 1990 and I bought the album and I really loved it. But, you know, going into Howard, I was like, oh man, I'm going to be like the only motherfucker listening to this record. Like, you know, my kind of <laughs> own narrow perspective. And I got to give a shout out to the fifth floor, Drew Hall, because lots of dudes love this record and love the album. And it really opened up like, I didn't think, I thought I was more unique than I was. And that was a big part of like my Howard narrative. So Seal has always had a special place in my heart. And most recently he's done like a lot of like cover albums and stuff, but his first like three, four albums, I think are all pretty interesting, great production, all that kind of stuff. So my drop is dive into Seal. So you're up. <laughs> and actually, this is kind of a DC drop too. One of the things that people may not know about DC uh, is that we were also one of the centers for Mormon culture in the US. And it is one of the two places where Mormon folks can get married. And so there's a lot because of the tabernacle outside of the city and because there's a, a ton of Mormon folks that work in the government, especially the military and the intelligence services. There's a huge Mormon population here, and I grew up around a lot of Mormon folks, as did my as did my wife. Uh, and in part because of that, because we knew a lot of folks in this and didn't understand it at all, we've just rewatched Big Love, and I would really, really encourage people to go back and watch Big Love, especially if you haven't before, because I really think it is one of those shows, one of those texts that explains so much about America and where we're at by focusing on a, a really, what seems like a really small, weird corner of it, like a, a breakaway polygamous sect of, of Morgans. So incredible performances, Gene Triplehorn and Chloe Savigny especially blow it away. But I think like it really is like a key that unlocks so much of the Trump era in particular. Yeah, can't endorse Big Love enough. Our guest drops don't need me to co-sign them, but... In this case, I'm going to throw in a cosign for Big Love because it was actually, when it was on, I always felt it was one of those HBO shows that it wasn't The Sopranos, so it didn't get, it wasn't The Wire, but it was like fantastic. And I loved it in its original run, recently rewatched it, like I want to say this past winter. So I've had also a very, like similarly to you, I've rewatched it very recently. 
And it's not only does it stand up, I think to your point, it's even better on the rewatch or it's even better with distance from the times in which the show has been based. So it's a fantastic show. That's an awesome, awesome drop. So big thumbs up for that one. Thanks, man. Dan, this has been really, really great. I've loved having this conversation. I love reading the book. It's one that, again, you can get as specific as you want into DC, but then also extrapolate into a lot of the kind of social and cultural things that we're seeing around the country as it pertains to technology and working and education and our resources and our culture. I think it's it's such an important book. And, you know, I can't thank you enough for taking the time and, and joining me on The Deep Dive. I really appreciate it. I mean, it's the, the deepest pleasure of having written a book is to work on those ideas with other people. So it's a, it's a real pleasure to be here today. Thank you so much. Fantastic job. Appreciate it. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.